Hello, it's Anthony Chadwick from the Webinar Vet, welcoming you to another episode of Vet Chat. Today, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Stefanos Kladakis, who's a good friend of mine from Greece, works in the army, but is also an expert uh, soft tissue surgeon. And we're going to be talking about uh, neutering of dogs and cats, mainly dogs. Uh, so I'm going to um, welcome Stefanos in my best Greek. Kalos soriste ton Dr. Stefanos. I tried. I tried, Stefanos. You can be better, though. Pois isse. I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you. Ah, good, good, good. I'm I'm showing off everyone because I've just come back from Rhodes for the ISFM conference, and I was hoping to meet Stefanos, but unfortunately, some of the team at his practice uh, developed COVID. So you had to study the uh, study the ship, didn't you? Yeah, it was pretty much uncomfortable for me Yeah, to cancel everything yeah. the very last moment. We will have a chance to meet again. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. I'm sure, I'm sure it was a great conference in a great place like Rhodes. Rhodes is a beautiful island, isn't it? Yes, of course it is. Is it one of your finest Greek islands or are they all as good as each other? Well, my number one is the island that I was born, Crete. So Greece. everything is after Crete. <laughs> of course, that's fair enough. It's a bit like Liverpool is the the number one city in the UK. And not only for UK. Also <laughs> <in> my preference. <laughs> we, we are also great footballers, but I promise everyone we're not going to be talking about uh, Liverpool, the football team. We are here to talk about... Uh, dogs and cats and and the whole aspect of neutering and uh, spaying and castrating and i thought we'd start off with the handy acronym that i heard you talking about at the beginning um when you're thinking about spaying or neutering an animal you you begin to think about uh, the boats that i was talking about there before you were studying the ship the boat what what does uh, boat mean to you when you're thinking about neutering Stephanos? Well, um, B is for breed, O is for owner, A is for age, and T is for timing. I think that if we consider all those four things, but all together as a whole, yes. then we might have the option to have a good decision and give a good recommendation uh, to the owner of what should be done. Because as it seems at the moment, every case is different and we need to have a case-by-case counselling for the owners. Exactly. I think there was a tendency to have a very much, this is the way we do it. It doesn't matter what type of breed. It's just our strategy. And some people were saying before seasons, some people after seasons. Um, today, the 13th of July, uh, Stephanos, I know you're not going to believe it, but it's the 32nd. Uh, anniversary of me qualifying as a vet <laughs> and um, I actually had a, a lovely uh, lecturer called Dr Peter Holt who was our external examiner who was the expert on uh, incontinence in bitches mm-hmm. and it was all very much about you know when to spay and what makes uh, incontinence more likely in, in bitches uh, and that area is was obviously an area that he championed but it's developed even over the last three decades, to make us a lot clearer how we can reduce the incidences of those diseases. And you're quite right, there are certain breeds that will be much more likely to develop incontinence than other breeds, isn't there? 
of course. But as we started talking about the pros and cons of spay or neuter, and you started uh, very nicely from the incontinence thing, um, you know that incontinence uh, may develop four weeks to 10 years post spaying. Yeah. So um, at the moment, we do know that it is more common in spayed pets regardless of the surgical timing people 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 believe that it is um, some people believe that it is more common in pets that are spayed at an early age well that is not true um, we do know that the prevalence of incontinence in spay dogs is about five to twenty percent depending if you compare with intact is zero to one percent and depends on the paper you read about the right percentage yeah. but we do know that it's five to twenty percent and we also know that there is no link between the age of spay and the likelihood of developing urinary incontinence so it's very it's very clear for us at the moment and it took us some years to understand that i remember another paper more from the um, perspective of castration where a great dane was castrated very early in life and then i think it got a fracture, I think it was a femoral fracture, but it may have been a growth plate fracture. They were, again, more prone. But, of course, this was a case of one, which, uh, you know, isn't evidence-based and isn't, uh, you know, double-blinded and all these things, because that's difficult to do in a surgical way, isn't it, to have that uh, sort of non-biased test that you set up. Um, this is one more problem that we have at the moment, that we have a lack of strong evidence on appropriate timing. There are no randomized controlled lifetime studies that we can uh, read in order to have some things to say straightforward. That mm. is why I told you from the very beginning that at the moment it's a case-by-case counseling, or at least that it should be. Mm. There, You can have a strategy if you want for some breeds, for some owners. I was going to say, Stephanos, there seems to be something that sits in your stomach to say that this is right, that an older dog like a Great Dane that obviously reaches maturity much later than a Yorkshire Terrier would do, that we of should course. time those operations later than, than with the Yorkshire Terrier. We do know that, especially for large breeds or for giant breeds, space neuters should be done before uh, beyond their uh, musculoskeletal maturity that means yeah. at least after one year exactly. beyond we have to go beyond one year we, there is no data saying that we can uh, do some spay in a great day when it's four months old it's not mm. it's not something that we should do and if we do that we will probably face some problems Yes, exactly. Because because we need to understand that space or neuters uh, do not affect just the pet's reproductive status. It's more than that. Yeah, it's profound, isn't it? Yes, we know that. We know that there there are papers to read that say that. We have studies. We want the animal to to mature, and you know, in the end, one of the first things as a vet is to do no harm, isn't it? So. If we're doing preventative type procedures, be they vaccinations, flea treatments, um, operations like neutering, then we don't want to leave the animal worse off after it. As you said before, it's a very, before we joined, it's a very routine procedure, but it's also very difficult because this is a healthy animal. Yes. And at the end of the procedure, you want to make sure the animal is still healthy. Of course. And as I see it as a surgeon, 
for me it's the most difficult operation I can do, even now after more than 20 years in small animal practice. And I think it also can, um, for young vets qualifying, it can be something that makes them lose their confidence because they're used to um, being in control, passing all their exams first time, and then suddenly, um, you know, fairly new into the profession, out of practice, they're asked to do a spay, maybe they're supported, maybe they're not, a ligature slips, there's blood coming up to the surface. What's your advice as to how, you know, an inexperienced surgeon should cope with that sort of occurrence? Well, you do know that in surgery, we have a small motto, and the motto is very simple. It says, see one, do one, teach one. So hmm. the, there is a learning curve. You have to see first how it's done. Then you have to try under supervision. Then you have to do it by yourself with someone supervising you. And after that, when you feel confident, it's the right time for you to teach how it's done. Mm. This is the right way to work. So uh, in, in, in small animal practices, in clinics, in hospitals, most of the times things should be working this way. Not only for surgery, of course, but for mm. surgery, because for surgery we're talking about now, it's very important. So if you do that, you will have less sweat in your face. <laughs> and the other thing, of course, remembering you know my time operating, you can get too worried as well. A bit of ooze coming from fat, you know, blood coming up, that's normal. But sometimes people get so worried about that. You know when... Yeah something is really bleeding because the, the blood comes up very quick to you, doesn't it? Yes, yes, that, that is true. Um, I remember once um, one of my um, professors at the university, when we were talking about um, castration and spaying, the advice that he gave me when it, it came to obese patients, I asked him, Professor, okay, there are many patients, all right, dogs, cats, overweight, obese, um, what do we do with them? I mean, we have to spay them. Uh, and the answer was from him, no, you do not have to spay them. Let, tell them to lose weight and come afterwards. And what he meant was that what you exactly said, I mean, before that, it, it has some potential risk if you go in surgery with an obese patient. And yeah. yes, if you're not an experienced one, you shouldn't be starting doing surgery with obese patients. For an experienced person, maybe it's okay. Yeah. But also the worry with an obese dog is when you spay it, you make the problem even worse because most dogs post-spay or castration will put on further weight, won't they? Well, regarding this thing, I must tell you this. I read a recent paper um, about obesity in uh, um, pets in the United States where approximately 50 to 60% of those are uh, overweight or obese. Mm. Well, there are many diets, of course, we know that, that are available at the moment, uh, so can be fed to our pets to complete their uh, requirements, okay, of that. But if then after diagnosis, and if they're, even after those pets were on a weight management program, only 10% lose weight. Maybe there is an owner, an owner compliance on that. Probably, yes. But only 10% lose weight. And from those 10% who lose weight, 40% of those will resume their overweight status in less than a year. The same with people, Stefanos. Yes, the same with people. 
<laughs> it's interesting. I mean, talking about not spaying a dog because maybe it's overweight or there's another issue. Do you have much experience or any thoughts on some of the chemical agents that are available to um, chemically castrate or, or delay season in the uh, in the dogs? Yes, I I know things about them, but I generally do not use them unless un- unless unless if it is for a therapeutic reason, of course. Yeah. What are your thoughts with um, you know the actual castration operation? Um, and to some degree also the the spay, using um, those, particularly maybe the ovarian stumps, what sort of stitch are you putting in there? Is that a transfixing suture? Is that, uh, how how do you try and prevent that suture slipping off for those people listening again, perhaps who are a bit nervous about that part of the procedure? And what do you do with the suspensory ligament? Well, regarding suturing, I generally use the Miller knot. Um, it looks it looks very easy and safe to me to apply. No, no matter how big or small the pedicle is. Regarding regarding sutures, I generally work with um, monofilament absorbable sutures. But when it comes to ligatures, no problem to use multifilaments. Also, I generally have no problems with that. I feel very confident, and um, the reason I feel confident is that from all these years in um, practicing uh, surgery, uh, I stick to the things that I've learned when I was a young vet from my colleagues at that moment. So I got up the ladder, the ladder, the learning curve uh, towards before. So I think that the Miller knot is the best knot that you can use in order to sleep very mm-hmm. nice at night and have, of course, less oozing, oozing from the from the pedicles. Yeah. No, I must admit that was. Uh, in the early stages, the the sleeping at night stuff was uh, was always a tiny worry. If you had something and you weren't quite happy with that, whatever the the procedure was, whether it was spay or whatever, that the next day that the uh, the pet was still alive. That's true. Do you want to join the largest online veterinary community in the world? The Webinar Vets membership is the perfect tool to complete your veterinary CPD with ease, anytime, any place on any connected device. Become a member today and explore our library of over 2,000 premium quality veterinary webinars. You can also track your CPD and log your activity with the One CPD app or download your certificates. To find out more, visit thewebinarvet.com forward slash memberships. When you see complications sort of post-operatively, what are the complications that you see most, uh, perhaps from other people's surgery uh, for for spays and castrates? I I think that the um, more often things that we see is anything that has to do um, about the incision. That means that we may have some dermatitis, maybe some leakage some of the pets are leaking their incision probably because we have used uh, sutures that are very tight yeah so an elizabethan collar is a mast after this kind of uh, operations routinely used for both dogs and cats Um, seromas from the incision um, most of of the complications have to do with the incision about the wound about the surgical wound that we create I know that some people are are talking about um, how long the incision is, how big the incision is. I mean, some people are doing a big one incision, some others are making a small hole just to do this kind of surgery. 
um, the last years we have many people uh, working with uh, laparoscopes and doing this uh, uh, keyhole um, surgeries, which are completely fine, of course. Um, so at the moment, there are many options that an ORA can have uh, around um, to have the best result for um, his dog or his cat. It's really interesting seeing the rise of laparoscopy. And I remember when I was a student, I went to Zimbabwe and one of the vets in Harare there was just doing um, removing of ovaries and leaving the uterus in, obviously still as a surgical going in and, and finding them rather than using a laparoscope. But it's, uh, it's again, it's amazing how things come around. That was in, in Harare and... Uh, of course, we'd all been taught 30 years ago that you removed, it was an ovario hysterectomy. Uh, now, of course, we're seeing that removing the ovaries is perfectly acceptable. So w which do you prefer? Do you do quite a lot of laparoscopic space or do you mainly the uh, the, the more surgical, um, you know, removing everything? In, in my routine, more of uh, these cases are uh, open surgery cases. When it comes to ovariectomy or ovariectomy, of course, both are acceptable. I do both. What would be what would be your reason to choose one or t'other? The age of the patient. If I have um, a patient that a dog or a cat, um, a very young one, I can definitely say that I may prefer ovariectomy. If my patient mm. um, is a big one in age, I mean five, six, seven years old. I may consider the ovarius directly. I suppose partly because if you leave the uterus in and it then becomes cancerous, that's yes. something that you yes, potentially yes, yes. missed that you could have helped you. Yes, but it's uh, both acceptable so matter what you choose to do. It's uh, one of my uh, locums, a German locum once said to me, Stefanos, that if two vets are in the room and they both agree with each other, one of them is not a vet. <laughs> So I, I thought that's quite a nice story. That is true. Same count with human physicians. Yes. Yeah. Four four doctors, five opinions. Yeah. <laughs> my my one of my vets early on in my career would do very small holes and and you know could actually get everything out through that and and obviously it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a laparoscopic spay it was a you know a full surgical spay but then at the same time he would also remind me that. Uh, Big mistakes can come out of small holes as well, so it's it's right to get it to the size that you feel comfortable that will help you to make a successful operation, but not so big that the poor dog is split from one end to the other. Your incision should be giving you confidence. So yeah, you need to have a confident incision to do your the job properly. It is as uh, simple as that. If you want a big one, do a big one. If you do a small one, do a small one. Yeah, exactly. Moving on, because, you know, I love cats. Um, what is the current thought about flank space versus midline space? Is that something you have an opinion on? Flank incision is not my option. Never was. Even from the university, what we were taught was to do uh, the midline one. And just in certain cases that we couldn't ac have access to, to the midline, would be choose to do a flank one. For example, for... Um, fibroepithelial hyperplasia, for example, mm. those cases. It's fascinating, again, you know, different countries. We, we were all taught in the UK to do flanks, and that's what we did most of. Of course, you know, I could do a, um, a midline and often would do on um, 
the more fancy cats like uh, Siamese and Persians, because obviously you could actually have a different colour hair coming back on the flank if you did it. So uh, both both were uh, comfortable, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's a, it's you see different things in different countries, don't you? Yes, of course, and that's the good about a profession. I mean, I I, I do feel confident. Yeah. I do feel confident. Pretty much to do both operations, no problem with me. So if someone tells me I want you to do mm. a flank one, I will say okay, no problem. It's not it's not unethical. I mean, <laughs> it's it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you ask me what I prefer, I prefer what is less bloody, and going through the midline is less bloody. Nice and avascular. Simple as that. Stefanos, we you talked a little bit about timing. Uh, before as well with your boat acronym Mm -hmm. Um, what is your thoughts about often with cats it's difficult if they're in season that you have to pick a time to spay them obviously with dogs if they're coming into season when is the sort of optimal time that you like to operate on on dogs and then you know if you operate on a cat and you see that it's in season when you open it up what what maybe further precautions do you take I generally try to avoid uh, to do space during heat or season. I try to avoid that, and I do. I do um, make it in approximately ninety-nine percent of cases. The hemorrhage that you may um, encounter in dogs or cats under heat is unpredictable, mm-hmm. and also you do have some problems with anesthesia. That is why it's not my option to do um, space or neuters at an early age or when the females are in heat? It was um, obviously easy to predict with a female dog because you knew, depending on the dog, that when it might come into season. Certainly, when I was in practice, there was still a controversy whether you could spay before or after season. Obviously, if, if the animal has had a season, are you usually looking at about three months after that to book them in for the operation? Is that still your sort of strategy or what do you do? At least, at least one month after. At least one month after, because I, so at some points I have to consider also the owner needs. So if um, yeah. we talk each other and see what's the appropriate timing, comparing when it comes mm. to when he is available for that. I mean, we all are living our, our life is too complicated at yeah. the moment, uh, and especially the last two years uh, because of COVID. Yeah, um, walking around going around is not so easy so at some point we have to see when it's good for all of us and and of course for the pet and of course with cats it's more difficult we used to work with a charity that uh, trapped feral cats you then have to take them as you find them and of course they could be early pregnant they could be late pregnant they could be you know totally in an estrus or they can be in season and then it is just as you say it's a it's a more difficult procedure, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. When it comes to population control and you have to do the operation, then things are completely different. You will do it, of course, taking all the precaution measures yet that you may think at that moment. What are your thoughts on operating? At what age do you think you reach a certain stage and you say there's no point now in doing the spay, although we know there may be pyometra or whatever down the line? Do you at some point stop suggesting spaying perhaps to a client who has never quite got round to it? 
well that depends of course on the owner for first if he has no problem yeah. and and uh, the animal is already 10 or 12 years old if we're talking about a dog then okay i will say it once if he doesn't yeah. want to go more then i will stop saying that we do have we do have some owners who just do not want their animals to be spayed or neutered no problem if they see that way um, but mm-hmm. our um, our obligation as vets is to let them know about the relative risks. So we need an owner who is well informed. That's the number one for us. Yeah. So if he is well informed, then it's up to him or her what to decide. We cannot we cannot push anything. Yeah, I know. Of course, a final one. Female dog comes in with mammary tumors. It's about five or six years old. How do you uh, approach that now? Because again, things change and habits change. Is that just remove the mammary glands either as a strip or partial, depending on you know where it is? Or would you, would you look to uh, spay those animals as well as, as an older dog? Because obviously a younger dog, it's preventative, isn't it? But as they get older, it isn't. I will always advise spay. To prevent, of course, to prevent other diseases like palmitra, and we do know that the percentage of palmitra, for example, in a, in a female that is not spayed, is, is at least twenty-five or thirty percent, if I recall. So it's so yeah. it's a big one. I always say the owners these things, and we take the decision together. I'm not forcing them to take this kind of a decision, but I want them to be well informed. It's as you were saying before, you know, we've got that lovely acronym, the sort of boat, which is breed, owner, age and timing. All of those factors have to be considered together. And then also from the other side, you were talking about the patient, the owner, and then, you know, the community, particularly with cats, you don't want to be overrun with cats. So there's a there's an obligation to the wider community as well, isn't there? Of course, cats are, uh, I, I don't know about the UK, but in our country, we have a big population of cats. So we do have the same problem. Yeah. So we, we, we don't want this overpopulation to happen. So from time to time, we are facing the same problem like you do. I remember one of my favorite books was uh, My Family and Other Animals. And one of Jerry's tutors loved cats, but would occasionally disappear with a shotgun as he was teaching Jerry and then uh, come back crying because he'd obviously... This was in Corfu, he'd shot a cat. We, we now have a slightly better, well, much better uh, strategies for, for limiting the cat population, don't we? Yes, hopefully, yes, we have. <laughs> Things have changed. <laughs> Stefanos, thank you so much for that overview. It's so interesting because obviously this was very much part of my life. The last few years, I've not been in practice, so it's always interesting to see where things are going, and it's always great to speak to you as well. Thank you very much for inviting me. Always a pleasure to talk with you. And and let's hope uh, next year we, we bring back the European Cup as well. Stefanos. Hopefully, yes. Yes, we would love that. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. You bye-bye. Too. Bye-bye.